Should we just start? I don't know. Usually we banter. What should we banter about? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've totally spaced on the question that you just asked I'm as just, well. That's okay. It's so low energy today. I'm out of it. Yeah. We're um, all out of it. Sorry. We had to slog here in the snow. Yeah. Yesterday, I was trying to get to the one job that I still had this week due to snow. Uh, and my car had been in a snowdrift for two days, and the engine almost didn't start. It took Whoops. a couple tries. So that was a little scary. Yikes. <laughs> it's fine now, though. So, like, and I don't know. Cars are terrible. Don't own a car if you can avoid it. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I'm just hoping that everything is fine now, and it was just a one-time thing, and it's not going to happen again. Well, I'm glad your car did ultimately start. <laughs> Cool. Well, welcome to the Trade Waiters. Uh, we are going to do our second episode of Naoki Urasawa's Monster. This it will be volume two, which uh, comprises, uh, I think it's chapters 17 to 30-something? 31, I believe. 31, okay. So this will be the second volume of the Big Omnibus and the uh, third and fourth volumes of the... Uh, earlier printing, the smaller Tankabon ones. So uh, we're going to do another character revealing question, just in case you somehow missed our previous episode and forgot who we were. (laughs) Um, So the question uh, today is going to be, if you were on the run from Inspector Lunga, uh, do you have any skills that you could use to sell to the black market to live off of? Uh, I could go first. Okay. So I'm uh, Nina, and... I think I could be pretty good at counterfeiting artwork. It's <laughs> mm. a good skill. I, yeah, because like I, I'm not the greatest painter per se. I'm more into digital stuff, obviously. But I think I'm pretty well known at like changing my style and like um, especially doing parodies and like uh, matching the styles of, uh, of other people. And, and I think I'm I'm pretty decent at that. So possibly I could do like <laughs> counterfeit stuff. If I was, you know, if I, uh, all I had to do was, like, copy an existing piece of artwork, that's way easier than coming up with an entirely different <laughs> piece of artwork based on someone else's style. And um, I could probably do it pretty well, at, at least long enough, you know, to, to trick someone into paying for it. Like, they might find out later that it's it's um, a, a fake, but... <laughs> By that time, you're on the road. And exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, I'm Jonathan, and I don't know that I have any skills that would be good for the black market. I mean, I've never heard of a black market teacher, so I'm not sure. <laughs> you guys have forbidden knowledge, for don't you? <laughs> not really. All my I'm an elementary school teacher. All my knowledge is very general. <laughs> you, you can uh, teach children. There's you know, there's talk of teaching children in these books. Monsters have children. They I, need private tutors. Teaching I little did, monsters. I did have the student of a mobster once. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Well. Bad class. grades. <laughs> uh, is that all? Yeah. I'm Jam. Uh, I've been thinking about this, and if there was a black market operation of production, 
So maybe they have like a chemical assembly line for drugs or something or uh, knockoff handbags. I don't know. There's problems <laughs> with it. I could probably diagnose it and fix it, which is maybe a, a very select group of people. So like it's not just kind of the broader underworld. Uh, <laughs> I have a specific set of skills. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I would last very long. Let's, let's, put it let's that way. face it. We would all get caught by Lungi pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he... I wouldn't last two days on the run. <laughs> You'd probably run into him like a coffee shop. Like, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not a good enough liar to pull this off. So it's not going to work. <laughs> it's like if the trade raiders need to turn to a life of crime, it's going to be a short podcast. Yeah. Well, that's why you can trust us. <laughs> there's, there's no block, uh, black market podcasting either. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> we could be innovators. Just wait 10 years and see what happens to the world. Welcome to the crime waiters. <laughs> we wait for the crimes to come to us. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, we probably have more we can talk about volume one as well because there was so much. Uh, we only kind of skimmed the surface last time, but uh, maybe let's do like a plot synopsis of volume two first. Yeah, we can we can talk about broad strokes of the story, including volume one and two, and both of them are going to be spoiled. So mm-hmm. listen to volume one first and <laughs> make sure you read them both. So volume two, there's a lot of basically short stories in sequence kind of. Not, um, not a whole lot of Tenma. Yeah. We break away from him a lot to see other characters. So there's... Oh, let's see if I can actually summarize any of this. This Again, we mentioned this last episode. There's a lot of twists and turns. It's hard to keep track. Well, first we meet Heckle. That's right. Yes, Heckle is the one I was thinking about last episode. He's an interesting guy. Oh, yeah, okay. He's like a little like weaselly rat-faced guy who just like steals things and sells them. That's pretty much it. He's good at like breaking into places. Uh-huh. He and he a... kind of gets caught up in this. Yeah, yeah. Because Tenma needs him to break into places, I think. Uh, and then we have uh, Dieter, the the boy that Tenma meets. That was fun. Oh, as well. sorry, I m- misspoke. Um, Heckle says he'll be Tenma's manager. That's right. And and find him like uh, mobsters or whatever to treat. Mm-hmm. So he becomes a Tenma becomes a black market doctor. Yeah, and we don't see a lot of him doing that in this volume, but that does come up again later on in the series. So this is sort of the start of that. Uh, and that was kind of. Um, I mentioned last episode that there was another uh, Tezuka connection, and that part in particular reminded me a lot of Blackjack, which is about uh, a weird black market doctor who's like exceptional, uh, exceptionally skilled, but always working on the underground and solving weird mysteries. And I uh, like I've heard that. Blackjack is Tezuka's most popular work, but it was the one that I had a hard time getting into just because it's pretty weird. Oh, you don't like it? No. I, I love it. What do you not like about it? I don't know. It's Maybe it's just the, the combination of there's some like realistic stuff and some like totally wild, unrealistic stuff, and I, they're just put together in a way that I haven't seen before. I don't but know. That's usually how Tezuka's works go, though, I think. Yeah, like that. I, that was what I was thinking too. It's like it, it is like blackjack, except Tenma is a way better guy than <laughs> blackjack. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. he doesn't charge like a billion dollars for his services. He <laughs> he's charges a, nothing. He's a, a more fleshed out character too. Yes, that too. Yeah, but much like blackjack, Tenma sort of adopts this uh, child to follow him around. Uh, in this case, it's Dieter, 
who he rescues from uh, an abusive home. Uh, although the this is not Dieter's father, this is just. Uh, turns out later that he worked in the uh, the orphanage that Dieter has been raised in. I think. Yeah, Kinderheim Five One One. And so that's how we find find out a little bit about uh, this mysterious orphanage. But then Tenma sort of rescues Dieter from this man, and then like tries to find a place, a safe place for him to live. But Dieter just won't go anywhere except with Tenma now. Dieter is very, like, sullen at first. He doesn't talk much, and he's like, oh, the world is full of darkness, and Tenma's like, who told you that? (laughs) (laughs) No, the world is a beautiful place. How dare you? (laughs) Uh, Tomorrow is going to be a great day. I think that's what he tells him. Mm -hmm. And so Dieter is like, wow, like, no one's ever told me that before. Like, no one's ever, like, fed him positivity because this... 501 Kinderheim place, they're basically breeding little monsters, like they're taking Mm -hmm. uh, orphan kids and, you know, just filling their heads with despair Mm -hmm. and make them into, like, um, soldiers, basically. Tenma's such a great guy. Like... (laughs) He really is. He he really, uh, he has this kind of tendency to really want to save people, Mm -hmm. but he does. He's, like, really kind-hearted and he goes out of his way to, like, he's like, everyone here who is injured and need to be fixed right away and, Mm -hmm. like, oh... Uh, like when there is a fire in the Turkish quarter, he's like, everyone needs to sit down. You know, it's like, oh, let's celebrate. No, you're sick. You have to sit and heal. <laughs> he's a very just to his core. He's a healer. Yeah. Yeah. Even when confronted with like um, murders that he yeah. has to help, he still helps him. He doesn't really like doing it, but he's like, well, all lives are created equal and everyone deserves to be treated. Everyone deserves to live. That's his <laughs> philosophy. Which is why the fact that he's out on a mission to kill Johan is just like tearing him up inside. He's basically <laughs> throwing his life away to do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think he's, he sees it as righting a wrong. Mm. And also preventing future wrongs. The, yeah. the idea that if, like, even though killing people is against his code and he tells other people, don't kill anyone, like, he's willing to do this act because he's convinced that this is the only way to prevent Johan from killing more people. Yeah, and he takes such a a, a lot of responsibility for it. If mm-hmm. like his responsibility didn't end on like do I save the child yes or no. It's like he he sees it as a long-term continuance of care. Like it's it's if he saves someone it's his responsibility whether or not that person is a good person. Mm. It seems like which is uh a lot? <laughs> a lot. It, it's an extreme. It's an extreme. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, when you are writing a story, you want to write about really extreme characters. And I think this duty of care, so to speak, is is something that he takes to extremes. I want to touch more on that, but we could get back to the, the plot. First, I don't want to uh, break away from that too much. At, at this point, I, fu- I thought that it was going to become more episodic, kind of like Littlest Hobo style, like <laughs> going from town to town fixing people. But fortunately, I think we don't see too much of that. Yeah, anyone who doesn't know a Littlest Hobo, that's them, some serious can-con right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's basically if Tenma was a, a helpful dog on a very, very low-budget uh, 1980s Canadian TV show. Wow. I, I, wanna, I want, like, Littlest Hobo, but, like, it's a dog that performs surgery on people. Oh, <laughs> I would read that. That, if Tezuka drew that, I would read that in a heartbeat. Yeah, oh, we could totally do that, yeah. <laughs> we could make it believable. He draws good dogs. <laughs> Then the focus shifts away from Tenma and Dieter and goes to uh, Eva, his um, his ex fiance, mm-hmm. and how she's managing, which is not very well. She's become an alcoholic. She's been married and divorced three times, and uh, she 
basically misses Tema a lot. She realizes he's the only man, man who ever actually loved her, and not just for her money either. And uh, she actually, yeah, she burns her home, uh, house down, <laughs> and then goes on this like weird journey of like revenge against Tema. But I think even she doesn't know what she wants to do with him exactly. That mm-hmm. was wild. That was yeah. a really fun little little arc. I enjoyed cool. that. Yeah. It's like if it was a character I didn't expect to come back. Mm. And so, like, I, I enjoyed this uh, new exploration of Ava, to be honest. Even yeah. though she's, like, not a very likable person. like I find <laughs> She's really she, not. She's also, like, very extreme, right? <laughs> the fact that in book one, like, oh, you're no longer on this career track. Well, bye. Like, literally mm. immediately. <laughs> no, she's a terrible woman. But somehow you, you kind of end up rooting for her a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> At like, least for me. <laughs> all, all the characters. Like, maybe like, with the exception of Johan, because he's, like, kind of pitched as the epitome of evil but like every other character even like the worst criminals they're written in such an interesting way that like you're sort of on board with Tenma's plan to save everybody Hmm. (laughs) I I love um, Eva's character design by the way the way her face is drawn is great in all her expressions Mm. you can just tell what kind of character she is just from looking at her but she can also sometimes look very soft and sweet when you see the the softer side of her Mm -hmm. like they they did a good job of showing her vulnerability and her humanity and so there was like this split second of like oh maybe she could get together with this gardener and you know sort her life out yeah alas (laughs) (laughs) it did not work out that way no and then the scene where she burns her house down there's like no preamble it's just like um two shots and then her house is burned down it's like wow and she just has like two two bags full of whatever and that's all she has and she wants revenge on Tenma and she goes to the police and uh, she even says she wants to kill him at one point but uh, she's just very conflicted inside Mm -hmm. and then we spend a bunch of time with Lunga as well the inspector who's trying to track Tenma down and this is like years later so he hasn't forgotten the case because he never forgets a case but he's sort of moved on and he's solving other cases and he's like working all the time and basically his family leaves him as a result because he's never around and so and then his uh, boss is like you're working too hard you need to like take a break I'm putting you on leave like take a vacation he's like well I guess I've got nothing left I've only got this one unsolved case it's now all about Tenma yeah doesn't he like pull out a picture of Tenma (laughs) and goes you're all I have now (laughs) yeah (laughs) what a guy so both him and and Eva are just like obsessed with Tenma in different ways (laughs) and they both want to track him down and and get him (laughs) yeah yeah it's, it's great uh then we also spend a bunch of time with um uh Nina slash Anna who is also trying to find her brother. Uh, she It turns out that she was the one who shot him when they were children. And so now she's trying to finish the job. She wasn't, like, she wasn't, like, upset at Tenma, but she wasn't happy about the fact that he saved her brother because, like, she was trying to, like, save the world from him, and it didn't work. She shot him because he killed their uh, their foster parents. Yeah. Uh, and so she's trying to track down Johan, and so is Tenma, and they eventually run into each other again. There's this whole thing with a, a group of white supremacists who want to burn down the, the Turkish quarter. There's a guy called the Baby. Mm-hmm. Oh, that Baby was like, super yeah. weird. That was another fun character where it's like super distinctive, super like clear character, so to speak. But like, whoa, what a weirdo! <laughs> this is like, like very short man who like. Uh, comes out dancing to uh, to be my baby. And uh, in, in Japanese, they kind of convey this through the English translation too, but in Japanese, he basically sounds 
like a baby. He yeah. uses like baby talk, which is very disturbing. Yeah, the baby talk really freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like that. But I'm glad they didn't do that in the English translation. They they did a little bit. A little yeah. bit, yeah. They didn't do it consistently. I think oh, if it would be consistent, it would have been too is much. Is it the exact same translation? Did they keep the original translation or did they change some things? Uh, I think that, th- like, it, I don't remember it being any different than this. There were just oh. a few speech balloons where they changed the, the way he talks. Okay, oh, the, the font is different. Is it? Yeah, the font is different. Maybe they, they fixed some things. I actually had some questions about the translation because it's really hard to tell when you're reading a book in translation how well uh, the text conveys the intent of the original text. Uh, yeah. Like, a lot of the writing seems very sort of just matter-of-fact. Like, there's not a lot of nuance. It's just like, this happened, this happened, this happened. And I don't know whether that's uh, an artifact of the original or whether that's just a translation that isn't putting a lot of nuance into it. No, I, I think that's, that's how it is. Like, I I haven't read this in, in Japanese, but I did watch the manga, which is, like, word for word, exactly the same thing. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I, I think kind of... Uh, much like the art style itself. It's, everything is very, uh, you know, straightforward. Mm, kind of stripped down, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the translation is different. Oh, I didn't know this. interesting. So the the baby, originally, in the original uh, first print, he says, wakey, wakey, and then don't worry, your boo-boos aren't so bad, when he wakes up Tema after he's been beaten up. Yeah, but in, in the uh, the perfect edition, he says, wakey, wakey, widow friend, and don't worry, we won't break any bones. Weird. And I actually prefer the original, huh. where he does speak like a like a toddler, but he doesn't do the the weird oh like break your bo- your bones kind of thing. Hmm. I mean, it, it it does you know, it it's a good way to translate the w- way he, he was speaking in Japanese, but I just find it distracting when it's in print. Yeah. That's I did too, me, because yeah. like it, it's so discongruous with this like older man mm-hmm. that I think it is supposed to be discongruous and disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, it's weird. No, it's weird <laughs> so, so I think uh, this is a Twin Peaks reference. Oh, am I the only one who knows? <laughs> I, 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 have, I, have I haven't seen, watched Twin Peaks. Okay, well, I haven't seen Twin Peaks either. But there's a very, fa- very, very famous scene of a little person, this guy who comes out dancing in this red room. There's these curtains. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I've not seen Twin Peaks. Yeah, Could again, like, I don't know anything about Twin Peaks, but uh, it's um, like the right era because this was done in the the nineties. I can't remember the character's name. I only know know about it because there's a Simpsons parody. Okay. About it. Oh, here we go. Yeah, the man, the man from another place. So, oh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm sure I've seen I'm just showing images of that. Yeah. Pictures, but no, I've not pr- seen this reference. But but I'm pretty sure it's based on huh. this guy uh, in Twin Peaks. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Just a strange little guy, and he he dances too. Huh. Like there is a sort of a Twin Peaksiness to the story, sort of a surreal noir kind of thing. So, like we don't really get to a like a conclusive ending at the end of Volume Two. They save the Turkish community. Heckel, yeah, Heckel is the one who saves it by throwing his very expensive rug that he stole onto <laughs> the fire to prevent an explosion. <laughs> yeah, well, Heckle doesn't do it. Tenma makes Dieter do it. Oh, yeah. Dieter just grabs it out of his hands <laughs> and does it. Um, oh, I should also men- mention that while all this is going on, Tenma has learned how to shoot a gun. He got special training from a guy, and uh, Anna is also learning how to shoot a gun. Mm-hmm. So they're both, you know, training themselves and uh, armed, and they're prepared for anything. Mm-hmm. They both want to uh, kill Johan. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and we also find out that Anna was, or Nina was the one who originally shot Johan. Mm-hmm. We find that out in volume two, right? Yeah, I think I so. I thought that was fascinating. Like, yeah, like Johan we... goads her into shooting him, and he's yeah. like, make sure you shoot me right in the head. And uh-huh. Yeah, like, there's there's a lot, of, lot going on there, which, like, comes up later on as well, but we do uh, get a little bit more, more backstory in volume two. They actually, um, uh, Tema finds that out in volume one. Actually. Okay, okay. When she first, see, uh, when she first sees um, her parents, her foster parents dead, that's when all the memories come flooding back. Right. Mm. Okay. She says, "I killed him," mm-hmm. or "I shot him." Yeah, uh, and then we do find out how far back this goes because uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's in volume two. We find out that those, the parents that they killed were not their first parents and not the first time Johan did this. Yeah, and he continues to do this. Mm-hmm. He's, like, tracking down all the people who have ever adopted him uh, throughout his life and killing them now that he's an adult. Well, I, I had a different interpretation. I thought he was doing it as he went. Oh. Like, m- killing maybe... one and then going to the next Yeah, that's family? correct. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I mis- misunderstood that. He just keeps, like, parent-hopping. Yeah. <laughs> he always gets, gets adopted by... By a couple who who are uh, childless too, mm-hmm. which is how Tenma starts to track him down. And he, he kills him because he doesn't want any traces of his history at all. Mm-hmm. Like wherever he lives, he doesn't want anyone to find out like he was there at all. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important part of the story. Yeah, he just wants to erase his existence basically. So we track him back as far as when they came to East Germany. So um, the first foster parents that we find out about with uh, Anna and Johan is. Uh, this couple who were like high-ranking officials in East Germany who fled to West Germany and then they die soon after and that's sort of where the story begins. Turns out that they had adopted the the two of them from uh, the Kinderheim 511 uh, but then that was not they're not from East Germany either. They were from Czechoslovakia and had crossed the border on their own as children and then were put in orphanages. So we don't at this point in the story, know any further back where they came from. And we don't know their um, original names either. Yeah. And like Anna was just one of many names she was given, and you know, Nina is also her other name. And Johan, Johan is referred to as Johan throughout the, the story, but he also adopts many different names. Mm-hmm. And he's started leaving messages around about how there's a monster inside him. Um, and he's leaving these messages, messages, I think, specifically for Tenma. Tema starts thinking maybe there's a split personality thing going on here. Lunge also starts to think that Tema has a split personality. Yeah, I and remember he, that. Yeah, and, and Lunge thinks um, Johan is his other personality. Oh, and so he thinks, well, yeah, Tema says he's innocent because he doesn't remember killing these people, and he thinks Johan, this other, uh, guy who doesn't exist, is the one committing these murders, and Johan is just a part of him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's it, wrong, but yeah, do you find it interesting how wrong he is? That he, like, to me, Lunge seems someone who is very, very competent mm-hmm. and very, very good at tracking these kind of things down. And yet he's like, I just have a nose for this and I, I think it's Tenma and I'm going to chase that to the end. Like, it's funny to me how I feel like if he had any inkling that I could be on, he would be an ally to Tenma. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without, I, I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I do, like, my read on that, I think, is that Johan is not a normal person and I think that's why maybe why uh, Lunga has a hard time believing he exists because he's maybe very good at understanding how an ordinary person would become a serial killer 
but someone like Johan is too far off his radar for him to believe that this is a real thing. Yeah, again, like, Lunga is like a Vulcan, and everything has to be perfectly logical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no logic <laughs> yeah. to Johan. Johan doesn't true. sound real at all. Like like you mentioned, John, then, uh, he sounds like a supernatural force. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you can't really blame him for thinking, um, <laughs> like, oh, maybe Temo's just making it all up and it's all in his head. Mm-hmm. Although, like, split personality, that's another arguable thing, like, if it exists or not. Well, maybe yeah. he's read too many crime novels, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting because Johan almost is a supernatural force the way he was quote-unquote created Mm -hmm. and it's like i'm interested in the the take of both of you of to what degree was he created and to what degree was he just like totally messed up to begin with um i can't like more we find out more about his backstory in other volumes and i can't remember like what it what his actual origin ends up being because there are so many misdirections along the way Mm. but it, it does feel like the the story is sort of this melodramatic morality play where we have the epitome of evil embodied by Johan and the epitome of good embodied by Tenma, even though Tenma is very conflicted and is doing something that's arguably not that great. He's trying to kill someone for nine volumes, but like all of the sort of the side stories and the things that happen in the story are sort of on that backdrop where it's like a, a fight between good and evil within different characters. So yeah, I guess it becomes like a nurturer versus nature thing. Yeah, that like, too. Was, yeah. yeah, was Johan the monster yeah, born that way or created? Yeah, that's a it's an interesting point. And I actually, this is one thing I wanted to bring up. Um, like this kind of makes me think about how not to get uh, into too depressing of a territory, but like uh, pro life arguments where mm. they're like, oh, you're you're killing these these unborn children who could grow up to, to become the next president or cure cancer. Like, what, what, do, you, what do you think about that? <laughs> and yet, when you see children getting killed, like, like say, uh, you know, a little boy getting shot by the cops because he was playing with a toy gun, and or, like, any of the kids, uh, you know, who are at the border, like, separated from their parents and, like, dying in cages, nobody ever says about those kids, like, oh, what if they could grow up to cure cancer? Mm. And which is really you know, depressing to think about, but, like, I don't know, like, do you think this is a good story in that sense? Because it almost makes you think, like, you know, like, um, a kid could grow to be a total monster, or it could also become, like, a pro-death penalty argument, in a way, because he's so evil. Yeah, like, the only way to stop this person is to kill him. It raises a lot of, like, morality questions. Yeah, I think that that is the question that the story is asking, and, uh, I mean, there's stories don't necessarily have to have like a single strong answer at the end, but I feel like the as the story progresses, most of what we see are characters who have good in them, even if they've done terrible things, and they're the only character that we're asked to believe is entirely evil is Johan. Like we meet some other, some other very disreputable characters, like there's. Uh, the the guy who teaches uh, Tenma how to shoot a gun was like a mercenary in Southeast Asia and is like killing people for money and so he's clearly not portrayed as a good person but then he kind of like has a bit of a turn where he kills a girl's mother and then adopts the girl because he doesn't know what else to do and he feels guilty and he's not a good parent necessarily but he's like he's not portrayed from that point on as being a villain. Like he's not someone who 
Tenma would say, "I have to kill that person." Yeah, the end of that chapter always gets to me. Yeah, it's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I, I think it's good that uh, Urasawa doesn't really lean towards either argument. Yeah, I think asking the question and sort of thinking about the answer is a more interesting approach oh, for than sure. being too direct. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's. I don't know. Do you think that's what he was going for, or I think so. That's that's my take on it, at least. That is sort of like asking. Like cause I find I'm I do this a lot when I write stories. Is I don't necessarily start with an an answer I want to come to, but a question I want to ask, and then sort of like think it through as I write the story. Uh, and then I do kind of generally have an idea of like, oh, I think it's this, but I never I never hold that answer too strongly because it's the question is more, more interesting than the answer. Um, and I think like the the setting is really interesting too because it's like we spend a lot of time with sort of middle class well to do families in like West Germany, but it's against this backdrop of like it's the Cold War and East Germany's not doing that well, and like even after they've reunited, that doesn't fix all the problems in the world, and a lot of the worst people are the people who are sort of like on a pedestal in society, like they're. Uh, directors of hospitals and politicians, and they're they're not that great either. Uh, and there's um, a lot of terrible things that happened under the uh, East German government. But then, like when you actually go there, you meet lots of good people too. So it feels like this sort of like high drama backdrop of being in Germany at the end of the Cold War suits the the theme very well. <laughs> I don't know. I There's think nothing more. <laughs> I, I think it, yeah. No, I think it makes the book a lot more interesting. Uh, the kind of cultural context in which it's set, and kind of I, I alluded to that in uh, our episode on book one, where it's like it makes this this choice of setting of Germany like it layers on to this morality tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I I found that it added a lot to the story rather than being distracting. I think there was. There were times when it's like, oh, this is kind of like pushing it to almost like a cartoonish, like, oh, fighting Nazis kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it got to that cartoonish level. I think it was used to reinforce the theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it helps, too, that he spends a lot of time sort of taking people who society rejects and making them out to be interesting, fleshed out, good characters. Like all the the Turkish characters that we meet in this story who are sort of like... They're on the underbelly of society. Not all of them, like some of them are criminals, but like they're good people. Like they, their lives have value just like everyone else's. Yeah. Yeah. It seems growing up in isolation or being rejected from society or other groups is a big theme in the story. Mm. And even Tenma himself, like I like, I like how you don't really find out much about Tenma's background. That's true. I think it's great. Like, there is much later down the line. You see, like, one flashback to his childhood, and that's it. <laughs> and at the very, very beginning of the story, like, at the beginning of Volume 1, there's a bit of mention about how his um, his father runs a small hospital, therefore he can't make it to the wedding. And he's... Uh, Tema is the youngest of uh, three kids. I think he's got two older brothers, I mm-hmm. think. And uh, it doesn't sound like they're close at all. And I think he... Did he say he moved to Germany to just get away from... Being stuck in Japan and yeah, you know, find like his he own didn't way. have a future uh, in medicine with his yeah. family situation. Yeah, and I really like that because you know, oftentimes you find out most about the protagonist, mm. and you, you learn a lot more about uh, the other characters than Tenma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's almost kind of um, 
like it, he's sort of a, a dual character in that he's kind of a, a cipher for the audience, but at the same time he's also the one who's sort of the the stand-in for the forces of good. So all the sort of moral dilemmas are like within himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's just such a good character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like every, I haven't read this in a long time. So I was glad to revisit it for uh, this podcast. But when I was reading it, I was just kept thinking to myself, "Man, he's such a good guy." <laughs> and like a lot of the characters keep seeing that too. He's like, well, "What a what a great doctor! What a good guy!" Uh-huh. Yeah. No, everyone sees everyone that he encounters. He seems to leave better. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and not not without struggling because it's not always easy to do that. One of my favorite little vignettes in this was uh, the country doctor. Oh yeah, and uh, the old woman who is sick. And how, like, the country doctor loved her. And so, like, every time he went out to see her, he would, like, be a little bit too aggressive of, like, no, you're sick and this has to happen. And yet, the, and Tenma is the one who could go through to her. And uh-huh. He would always eat her goulash. Her goulash that he, he, uh, she would make for her son. Yeah. The, the police officer who never visits her. <laughs> so he eats it instead. Oh, it was so sweet. It was so sweet. I really liked it. Uh-huh. I... I, even though I said, fortunately, we don't like end up, you know, little little as hoboing. <laughs> the um, it would, I guess, it would have been cool to see a, a bit more of that of him, like just going from town to town. I'm glad that they don't all end in death. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like I'm That's glad the, the little girl and uh, mercenary the pistol instructor. Yeah, uh-huh. and like I'm glad that the uh, Italian chef and yeah. That these people have survived so far. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, like even Heckle, like as far as I know, Heckle is still fine. I don't remember if anything happens to him later or not. Don't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad for all the people that we get to meet in this book. Oh yeah. No, that's that's a big big feature of the book, I think. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of like feel good vignettes in the second volumes. Maybe to take away from like the absolute despair you feel in the, in the first volume here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does get worse later, but it's just a nice, <laughs> fresh of breath air to have these little little stories. Yeah, of of some glimpse of hope. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I feel like that that's kind of the point is to have sort of contrast hope with darkness without making it too trickly either. It yeah. never gets corny. It never feels forced. Mm-hmm. He's he's just good at just like uh, representing yeah like a good balance between the you know the light and the dark like as you said and not making it too like. Uh, melodramatic either I did feel I, I thought it was a little melodramatic at times like I'm or, willing to yeah. forgive it that because it's such a fun story and such good characters but it, it did feel like bordering on melodrama on a regular basis I mean I take that as like melodrama not necessarily being a bad thing I think okay uh, can you have an example of something you thought was too melodramatic um, I don't know this the Everything is sort of, um, and maybe comics is just really good at melodrama and having like and of selling it well. But everything is very sort of high contrast. Everything is about good and evil. Um, you meet people at their lowest, and then they talk to Tenma, and their lives are turn around at that point. Uh, and I enjoy all that, but I also I could understand if someone were turned off by that part of it. I mean, yeah, like their lives are touched by Tenma for sure, but. It- it's not a complete 180, I wouldn't say. No. It's just kind of, he kind of gently nudges people towards the right direction, mm-hmm. I think, and makes them think. It's like he leads by example, right? Because he comes in and he is such a shining beacon of good <laughs> that <laughs> others are like, I should be better. <laughs> yeah. And who knows what happens from there? Yeah. 
because most of the people you never see again. Uh-huh. But it's also kind of a metaphor for life in that way. Like, I feel like we, in our day-to-day lives, we have these... We are very fortunate that we have these long-standing friendships and people that we've known for years and years, but most of our relationships are shorter. Hmm. And so we encounter some person in a context for a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, and then we part ways. And it's like, oh, I either enjoyed that counter, I hope they they continue to thrive, or like, oof, that was quite an encounter. I hope they get their stuff together. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's true. Sometimes the roles are reversed. Like the end of the second volume... That's uh, the Five Sugars story. And uh, in, in that one, it's more like, you know, the, the former assassin who Anna goes to uh, to learn about shooting a gun. Uh, he kind of nudges her in the right direction. He's like, he's basically going like, don't be like me. Mm-hmm. And you got to think about what it means to actually kill a person. I think that was also a really interesting parable of redemption. Mm-hmm. That even this professional killer can see humanity and can be redeemed and it's it's contrasting it with Johan which I think is being put up as like no in some cases you have to there's only one way out yeah uh but it's interesting like as you were saying earlier like the book is more about the question than the answer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I do feel like it helps that Johan is this sort of like otherworldly inhuman character where there are reasons why he can't be redeemed because he's just he's a monster Uh. (laughs) Oh, my God. I just remembered. So I was reading this before bed. And uh, that scene with Johan, like, sitting in a chair on the staircase, like, I actually, like, had a nightmare about that. Oh, Oh, wow. wow. (laughs) That's dark. Yeah. (laughs) Just wait till you get to the the part with the picture book in, like, the next volume. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. I actually have, like, the the actual picture book they made of that. They made an actual picture book? Yeah, it's very small and short. It was packaged with the last volume in Japanese. Uh Yeah, I... I, I said before that I haven't read it in Japanese. That's not true, actually, because I have the last volume in Japanese because it came bundled with that story. Huh. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Oh, um, one more thing I wanted to ask is, how do you feel about this this trope um, Monster uses of, like, the perfect killer? Like, the perfectly, like, super charismatic, super calm, well-dressed, uh, beautiful killer. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I used to really, really like that trope. Now I'm starting to get a little tired of it. Hmm. I mean, you see that um, in in the the Hannibal TV series. Like that's a really good example. Like he's able to like execute everything to perfection, and he's just like this soup, this guy that like everyone's drawn to, and he's like like good looking, well dressed, and uh, can do everything mm-hmm. and knows everything. But that's not how real killers are like. <laughs> well, that's that's not how most killers are. But I do feel like I mean I have never met anyone like that, of course. But oh, you don't as far know as you killers know, killers in elementary school. <laughs> no, as far as I know. <laughs> um, but I mean, you do hear stories about people who are like cult leaders or things like that who seem weirdly charismatic despite the horrible things they do, and I think that type of person begs an explanation. Uh, and it's hard for me to come up with an explanation because I've never met anyone like that. But, like, uh, I I am okay with that being sort of a a type of character as a sort of almost supernatural figure because it feels like a thing that maybe exists, even if I don't have any personal experience with it. Well, char- yeah, definitely a lot of killers uh, in history were super charismatic. 
but um, in the in the case of Johan, he's just like not only is he charismatic, he's just good at absolutely everything, mm, mm-hmm. and that's that's the kind of trope I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, no one no one is superhuman in skills to that degree. I think most charismatic killers are good at convincing people to do things for them. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, rather mm-hmm. than having all the skills themselves, mm-hmm. which Johan does as well. Yeah. Like, a lot of times he doesn't actually kill people himself. Like, he just convinces other people. Mm-hmm. And the people he convinces do get caught. Yeah, yeah. Because he's able to find, like, the perfect kind of minds <laughs> to manipulate. Uh-huh. He's yeah. just good at sniffing down people like that. But, yeah, like, uh, maybe it is a good thing that he seems unreal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is a, a rare figure, at the very least. Uh, okay, so, um, final thoughts. Uh, highly recommend. I think it's a really engaging work. If you're new to Urusawa, it's a really good introduction to Urusawa and his style of writing and his style of art. I think it's an easy read as well. Like, uh, it, it's it, even if someone is not too into manga, I don't think it would be a turnoff. Yeah. So broad recommend. Yeah, like like I I mentioned in the previous episode, this is my favorite manga series as an adult. And um, yeah, it's the one I recommend to people the most. I think people who aren't into manga, people who aren't even into comics, I say you gotta read Monster though. I think you'll like this because it is like such a different uh, t- type of uh, story and type of comic, and it, it's so I don't know, like it, it raised so many questions even in these like you know two short discussions we had about it, and it's a mature story and. Um, that, you know that's why I think Guillermo del Toro is like drawn to it too, and mm. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that HBO didn't pick up uh, the pitch. I still want to see how it would be adapted to live action because the anime was so good. Yeah, it could be done well. I think Hollywood doesn't know how to make good things. <laughs> directors, but, there are directors who do, but as a as an institution, Hollywood doesn't. If it was made into a film, it might not be good. But a, a TV series, like with sure. all this prestige television out there. It could be, like, a good Netflix series. Who knows? Well, I think they should at least put the anime on Netflix, like I mentioned before. Uh, Definitely check it out. It's more accessible than than ever now because uh, they reprinted the Perfect Edition. Maybe someday it'll come out digitally. I really hope so because I I think everyone should read this. Yeah. No, I would... This is one of my favorites. I would recommend it. Uh, It's also just a masterclass in cartooning. I'll often flip through... Urasawa just for ideas like how to lay out a page or whatever. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Despite all the rules he breaks. Yeah. We mentioned. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you don't show you don't have to follow the rules to make an not. engaging comic. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, should we do shoutouts one last time? I'm Jonathan. You can find my work at uh, phobos-comic.com, and I recently read the graphic novel version of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, drawn by Renee Nault. And she is a very good cartoonist. And BC local. Yes. Cool. Uh, my name is Jam. You can find my work at wastedtalent.ca. I'd like to shout out Mushishi, which is uh, if you enjoyed the episodic nature of Volume 2. Mushishi is a little bit more episodic, but I really like it. It's a It's set in historic Japan, period Japan, and it is about a wandering person who uh, fixes problems with spirits. I think is a way to to explain it, but it's really good. And all the anime of Mushishi is officially on YouTube for free. Whoa! So yeah, check that out. I am Nina Matsumoto, and uh, I want to give a shout out to Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. 
because I finally finished watching it. I was a skeptic. Everyone told me it's secretly the best Star Trek. I'm like, I don't know. Next Generation is pretty good. And it was a very slow burn. Uh, at first, I was really bored by it, but I hung in there, and I'm really glad I did. It, I just wish it started getting better um, sooner. Like, halfway through, it gets really, really good. But because of that, so many people like don't give it a chance. I'm glad I did, though. I'm so glad I finished it, and now I'm on to Voyager. <laughs> oh, there is a, a recently released, a pile on your recommendation, a recently released uh, documentary, like meta-documentary about Deep Space Nine that Ooh. I think was crowdfunded, oh. and I forget the name. But <laughs> if you do DS9 documentary and like I, I watched it recently, it was pretty good because right. DS9 is in a soft spot of my heart as well. Oh, yeah. Definitely so my favorite good. track. Our next book, we're going to, I hope you're ready for more manga. We're going to read uh, Delicious in Dungeon by Ryoko Kui. Uh, we're going to do volumes one and two, and we will have as a special guest, Faith Aaron Hicks. Woo! Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.com as well as Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.